Hello, Chico. Hello, Adam. How are you? I'm good. You? Rested? Yes. Rested and well. Excellent. What's the name of that song that you played? Pablo. And by which orchestra? Um, you recent... Ouch. You know what? Sorry. That was by Troilo. I have to check something out here. I'm going in through the wrong input yeah, again. You're, you're sounding a little like you're in a room than you're usually a sound. <laughs> and so what's going I on? I knew that was Troilo, but I just wanted to share with everyone. Mm -hmm. It's been your favorite through the pandemic. That is true. Yes. I might. So is this a song you always liked or there is something new that you discovered about it that makes you love this song? I've always liked it. Hold on, I'm going to call in. Okay. Good idea. Waiting. Hello, hello. Well, hello, you sound so much better. I thank you. I don't know why sometimes my computer doesn't use the correct microphone and I have Yeah, and I have it set up here that is as is if I am in that input, so I don't really understand, but it's well, too it's, late now. You only had 63 episodes to figure that. Out. <laughs> this happens like every fifth episode. I know. <laughs> no, I was laughing today because I had my milonga cardio and Barbara is always there 10 minutes early. And I'm like, how are you, Barbara? She's like, I have no time for this technology. Like, there's always something <laughs> that doesn't work that I need to spend extra time on. And yeah. it just like made me think of that. Like, it's always so unpredictable, even though it's an amazing thing and we're getting so much out of all this technology um, and I think what might have happened is that I plugged in the, the the microphone after I started the program or something I don't know yeah that definitely does not work for me with when I if I do it in a sound check from the computer it I can't switch after I started but it's fine I'll just do it like this so we had a great night last night yeah it was really good 41 people. And the music was amazing. I heard that. <laughs> I just kidding. The music was amazing. There was a DJ that started with Canaro, though. That was kind of weird. Yeah. Did I you decided... start with Canaro? And then what did you play after that? Biagi? No, I played this early. Uh, mm, oh, that's right. I, um, yeah, I don't usually start with Canaro, but yesterday I felt like starting with Canaro, and I wanted to save Troilo and... Darienzo to the next tango sets, tango santandas. Um, I don't know what made me, but I really wanted to start with that Canaro. And when it did, I was like, well, this feels different than how I visualize, but it's good songs, so it's good. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I'm liking the three song tandas that have been catching on around town. Yeah, I love Since it. The events are smaller and it helps get the room um moving moving mm -hmm. it's also like we can't breathe as easily with the mask so i think it's really good like to have that break after three songs um, yeah 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 when you have like you feel that with only two people in a room but then when there's more people in the room then there's also even less air 
to breathe in. I heard something today with my yoga, I, right before this I met with my yoga trainer group, classmates, and one of them said that a physical therapist friend of hers has been getting people with a shoulder pain a lot and then back pain and because because we were like discussing the benefits of diaphragmatic breathing that was part of our take-home exam is to research that and anyway apparently this physical therapist is realizing like a lot of people are not paying attention to how they're breathing in general now with the masks they're having a harder time to do the diaphragmatic breathing that not by forcing it but something that would happen naturally is not happening which helps you relax so there's creates not being able to do that is creating a lot of tension in their body so i was like very interesting that's gonna happen with dancers all around as we move with masks too i felt um with pretty much everybody i dance with except for maybe you and maybe one other person there every time the song ended they were like they were gasping and i don't move a lot i'm not like mm. yeah you don't a guy a who hits every beat i mean i'm a slow dancer these days and and i was even slowing it down more because one one girl she was sweating and she was just like <sighs> and yeah. i'm like and I, and i'm just thinking that's why i made the joke when we had the announcements i'm like Y'all need to get back into some conditioning because we're just walking around a room here, man. Exactly. I mean, I know uh, some people are moving a little more excitedly um, and stuff like that. But, but um, yeah, I've I've had no problem dancing with a mask on. Um, I, in fact, I kind of like it in certain respects. Like, I don't have to worry about my breath smelling or things in my teeth or. Yeah. Um, you know, I can like I can grab a bite behind the DJ booth and then run out to the dance floor and you know not be conscious of that so or as self-conscious of that. So I were, there were a few moments when I was leading where like I uh, smiled, something cute happened, and I was like, oh, the I wonder if the other person can actually tell this after like it happened. And then there was one moment my mouth went. <gasps> Cause I did something where I like almost stepped on her or something, and my like I was like, oh, I I'm like it was just my facial reactions. I was like, oh, it's sort of funny that probably most people can't tell that this is like the expression I have right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I feel fairly comfortable. I rarely feel like I can't breathe in it. I got used to it, I think. Especially now I, that there's more privates and stuff that I have to do it. I just too. I just think that like if you know how to breathe, it's like I go to the gym, I ride a bike, I climb, you know, I, I and I do all of this with a mask on. I mean, I don't ride the bike anymore with the mask on, but that's not because I couldn't breathe. It's just because yeah. you don't need to anymore. But I never really felt like I had any trouble because it just felt like I regulated my breathing fine. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, don't expend um, too much energy and. Anyway, I mean, everybody's different, and I'm not here to criticize people for not being able to breathe. It's a horrible thing to... to, Yeah, or, (laughs) I mean, I don't think they're, like, they're... Yeah, it's just, I think we need more awareness on it in general that uh, now is even more so. So, before we get to our guest, 
because we we we'd like to start the show off light, and uh, he's a very interesting guy, and yes, the conversation's going to be really interesting. But I wanted to say one more light thing. I just made a pot of chili. I bought Frankfurters, and after the show, the baseball starts at ten tonight because my team is playing on the West Coast. I'm going to have a chili dog and watch baseball. <laughs> nice. I'm looking forward to this. Is and then, this um, your dad's chili recipe? It's sort of like his. Yeah, I mean, sort of. I uh, I add. I I sort of like. I add a lot of seasonings because I just I'm not afraid of them. So my chili is is really like a curry in a way. It's like a mix of, and I also use pork and beef. Um, I see. But yeah, it's 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 just it's a lot more going on than just like chili powder, cumin, and salt and pepper. It's like I, I got I put a bunch of stuff in there because. Um, I just like to live on the edge, man. Oh, man. It is living on the edge. Be careful you know. with that one. Um, tomorrow I'm going to wake up and drive to South Jersey. Is that where it is? Somewhere outside of Philly for Jack's uh, Milonga. Mm-hmm. My first road gig in 14 months. That's true. And I didn't even think about that. You're putting me up in a hotel. I fancy. know, it's amazing, fancy. fancy. So I have a and question for you. And Chrissy and I are going to teach the class together, which I'm super oh, excited about. Oh, wow. Are you guys going to perform too? No. Okay. I mean, if they ask, maybe we'll just do like a nice little social demo. Mm-hmm. But we're obviously, we're not, we haven't danced together in over a year, so. Um, but I like to improvise anyway, as as yeah. you do and as she does. And, and as our guest um, does, uh, who will be joining us momentarily, so... We had a nice sound a... check. Sorry? Hmm. I have a question for you before, if we have a few more minutes uh-huh. before we invite our guests. I was thinking about this as, because you said, like, nowadays you're a slow dancer. Are you automatically drawn to rhythm over melody, usually? I used to be, yeah, in the okay. beginning, because it was so easy to to move it's it's i find it just much more easy to move to rhythm in the beats you know um even if you're not moving do you connect with the rhythm more over melody or not necessarily like any sort of song not just tango wait can you say that again like even if it's not tango and you're not actually going to move and you're listening, are you more drawn to the rhythm or the no. melody? the melody. Okay, okay. I was just curious, because uh, I was thinking like that might have changed for you over time with tango, and I was curious if you were drawn to rhythm with other music as well, or that was movement related. And you answered my question. I think it's easier to move to a beat as a, as a physical dancer, um, and it takes more awareness to move slower. And also, it's more can be more challenging to lead that and communicate mm-hmm. that. I don't know. Um, but it's very interesting, though. So, like you used to play the bass, right? Guitar. Yeah, uh, I played a few different instruments a long time and- ago. I mean, did you play drums as well a little mm-hmm. bit? Mm-hmm. 
because I like from the start for me like I was always drawn more to the melody and the singing or the violin always was like what I hear more and I had to sort of learn to hear the rhythm in the background the rhythmic bass um, that was not what I was used to paying attention so anyway I was like we were talking about this maybe being also a cultural thing the other day with memo like Turkish people I think are more drawn to melody and violin and all that because mm. the DJs when I first list went to a milonga in Turkey I was so surprised how different the music was and it was so much more melodic heavy like melodic melody heavy versus rhythmic melody um, Interesting. Anyway. No, I I can under I can see that. Um, I now that I think about it, I feel like Western music is definitely heavily more heavily rhythmic based. I mean, mm -hmm. country western, blues, not not necessarily jazz, but certain types of jazz. That swing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if there is a singer, does that reach your heart more, or it doesn't matter for you? There is a singer or not? In tango? Yeah. It does more now because I can understand the lyrics better. Hmm. So I don't know if it reaches my heart more, but I, I, I enjoy hearing it more because I can understand it. And it's not just like another layer of melody. I mean, I it is, but it has like now I understand the words for the for the most part. So it's actually easier to dance to the words now because I can anticipate what's going to be said before. It was like I knew... Yeah, it's it's kind of hard to describe, but um, mm. but I love the fact that the singers are always off the beat in a way. Yeah, like I love that. They're a little before or after. They're not like um, uh, so um, punctuated with the rhythm. So, but I think we should get our guest on Chico. Yes, yes. You can talk to okay. me about this anytime. You can just call me. <laughs> I didn't want to forget. I didn't want to forget. It was just like uh, I thought about this few weeks back, and then like recently had a conversation with Memo, and then now when you mentioned like you like moving slow now, I was like, oh, it just came to me. Yes. Mm -hmm. Without further ado. So we have Daniel Trenner joining us. Um, he has been dancing since 1987, and has been a big part of the United States tango community. And not only that, but um, as we spoke on the sound check, uh, he also got a lot of the Argentines when he was down there in 87 to to take their dance more seriously. Um, and to, because he was down there for uh, for other dancing, but as a, as a teacher. And so when he was working with them, he said, you know, he told them, look, if you're going to travel the world, you should, you should learn your dance too, to have something cultural to take with you on the road which I found really interesting. So a he's had his man. fingers in a lot of tango stuff that, you know, um, a lot of people are aware of what's happening now or in the last several years, but I've always been fascinated. And part of the reason we love this show is to show the growth of the, the genesis of the community, you know? And, yeah, and, exactly. And how that's come about. And he sent us this beautiful long bio, and I thought, instead of reading the bio, which we could do if he's not here, we can just use the bio... <laughs> as a springboard to ask fascinating questions. So if you exactly. can give us a call, Daniel, we would love to hear from you. 
And I also um, watched his TED Talks today in April, as mentioned, she's watched it too, and which was also really fascinating. Anyway, there's so much to talk to him about. I did see that he was here with us when we started. So he is uh, listening. Yeah. So that's so, a start. <laughs> but he, he wants to build this up more. <laughs> I, know. I guess I'll start reading the bio. <laughs> uh, he did send a he did send a photo of him and Rebecca Shulman from Oh Lord my god, I when, love that photo. Early mid nineties, early nineties, and they both look like babies. Um and Rebecca looks so much like her daughter. I mean her and daughter I was looks use, like her, but Yeah, and I wanted to use the um what was I gonna say? That photo for the uh, promo, but I didn't want to put Rebecca's photo out there without her permission. So I thought, well, I'll yeah. use the one that Daniel sent with his daughter. And here he is. Hold on a second. Can you hear me now? Yes, we can. Hello, Chica. Welcome to the show. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good choice. The song, Adam. Welcome, Daniel. Hello, it's nice to be here. I finally figured out how to call in. <laughs> That's great. That happens. That happens. It's all right. Yeah, when I, moved, when I moved to Western Massachusetts in 2002, I created a group house out here in Massachusetts to take care of my elders. My, my dad passed in 2011 and my mom passed just last November. And mm. so I have been totally immersed in a community which is like a spaceship which is 12 of us living together in a house during the pandemic so i really have had very little contact with the outside world through zoom and through uh the internet which is makes me unusual i know but uh, <laughs> in fact we all got trapped in the house together so we have quite the little community in our house and fortunately um eight of us are dancers so we have done a lot of dancing during the pandemic Wonderful. That's really nice. That's so good. Have you have you enjoyed? I mean, I'm assuming you must have enjoyed just being off of all of these technological things and just being with yourself and your people and just you know having that well, time. It was, it was never the intention to live isolated in this way, right? But the the original intention was as an alternative elder care. And so I was focused mostly on taking care of my folks. My dad had dementia when we moved here. And mm -hmm. after he passed, my mom, who died just before her 91st birthday, was in her late 80s. So um, it was, you know, it required a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. And I'm very glad that I managed to create this opportunity to be together because some of the people who live in my house have had elders in uh, nursing homes, and during the last year, they haven't been able to see their parents. Oh, yeah. yeah, of course. So, I got to I got to hang out with my mom for the last twelve years of her life, and uh, my dad for the last three years of his life, and it was a very rewarding experience. I was and talking to somebody last night who was a good friend of ours. At, we started our milonga, and he was there, and he he spent the year in Italy, and he said, normally I would be traveling the world and doing this and that, but I spent the year with my fit, my fit parents, and they're both older. And uh -huh. he said, it turned out to be a great year because I got to spend a whole year just with my mom and dad, and they're both in their late 80s, and I made, I never would have had that opportunity, you know. Um, so I thought that was really sweet for him to have that. And them, 
Yeah, and for you to have had the opportunity, not necessarily for the pandemic, Daniel, but to be with your parents mm -hmm. that long as well, like it's it's a luxury and it seems like you made that happen. It was also a balance because prior to moving here in 2002, I spent 20 years on the road and didn't get to see them very much. So. Mm -hmm. I so see. what shall what shall we talk about? Well, let's get everything, everything. Um, <laughs> we could start at the beginning of your journey. You you went to Buenos Aires in 1987 to teach contemporary dance, correct? And you followed Buenos your heart after a woman. I think that's what your bio said. Yes, my uh, good, still still my good friend Zoraida von Clara, and I met in Europe in 1986, and. Uh, we had a bit of a romance in um, Europe, and then she invited me to Argentina at the end of 86, and I actually flew there on January 1st, 1987. Oh, that's good. And at the, at the time, um, there was no expectation, really, of, um, of staying in Argentina because it was in the middle of an economic crisis. They had uh, an Argentine currency called the peso at that time, which had reached something like 10,000 to the dollar and, and they're on track they, to getting there again right yeah. then they they changed they changed from the peso to the austral so when i arrived in argentina in 1987 i believe that was when they changed from the peso to the austral and so i arrived when it was one dollar to one austral and then uh later some years later in 1980 in 1993 or something like that I became a millionaire when the Austral was ten thousand to one, and I oh got my paid. God. I got paid something like two or three hundred dollars to teach a class, and I walked away with millions. <laughs> so at, at that, it's, it at, was the easiest way to become a millionaire. It Daniel. was. <laughs> back in those days, there was very little tourism in Buenos Aires. The economy was bad, and the, it was hyperinflation, and there wasn't really a reason to hang around in Argentina because, uh, you know, dance teachers don't get paid a lot of money. And being a dance teacher in Buenos Aires in those days, even if I had, if I had a class of a, of a hundred students in Buenos Aires, I would make less money than I would make with a class of 10 people in the United States. Yeah. But um, in, in August of 1988, Zoraida and I were in a terrible automobile accident in the United States. And so at the end of 88, um, I moved to Buenos Aires and spent most of the next three years in Buenos Aires during our recovery from the um, mm. injuries that we had suffered in that auto accident. And uh, I had broken my coccyx, which is the little bone oh at the base God, of your spine. Yes. And Zoraida had broken an arm and required uh, bone grafts to repair the bones in her arm. So she was in a sling and I was carrying around one of these a foamy pillow. donuts, uh, a <laughs> pillow to sit on. And Shit, so I'm uh, laughing, but it's terrible. I'm sorry. Well, we we were the injured birds, and so when yeah. we showed when we when we showed up at the tango dances, all of the at that time, in 1980, 1988 was when we really got started dancing tango. There were very few young people. Maybe maybe there were less than a hundred people under the age of 60 dancing tango in Buenos Aires. And all of the dances were organized by and for the older generation. And they were notoriously hard on the younger generation. So um, these were older dancers who were bitter because the 
the world had closed down around them because of military years and they had lost the mm. best dancing years of their lives. Mm. And when they started to dance again, the youngsters who were interested in dancing were mostly modern dancers and folk dancers who were interested in tango performance because there was no social, social scene. Band, yeah. and, um, and for the most part, the milongueros didn't really... They didn't really. They weren't really in sync with the idea of tango as a performance art, and when and they were not, they were not trained pedagogues. They were not teachers. So therefore, mostly the th what they did to the younger dancers was tell them that they were doing it wrong. So it was pretty. They were pretty harsh on the younger generation, and Zoraida and I were injured. So she showed up in, with her arm in a sling, and I was sitting on a foam donut, and. Uh, and they all knew that we were damaged in, uh, in in the auto accident. So we were kind of taken under their wings and treated with kid gloves. Partially, mm -hmm. that must that must have been because I was American. And uh, the only American that they had met besides myself at that point was Robert Duval. Mm -hmm. And we were we were kind of the two Yankees that would show up at the dances. <laughs> wow. And uh, and we got to. I wouldn't exactly say we were friends, but we got to hang out a bit because they would always sit me at his table because I spoke English. <laughs> and and uh, so we, so in those days, it was mostly, um, we would go to uh, La Catedral, which was uh, Sin Rumbo, out in Dijorquisa, and to Canning, which was um, the Salon Hellenico, which was, is still, I believe it's still in operation, but um, that was, those were the two principal places where tango happened all the time. And then in the summertime, there was an outdoor milonga in Estudiantes del Norte, also in Vigiroquisa. Mm -hmm. And, and this, these dances were basically populated completely with the older generation. Another of the dances that we went to in those early days was at the Confeteria Regine, which has since become, what is it known as now? Um, it's on the corner of Corrientes and... Uh, Confiteria Idea? Uh, no. Uh, no. Corrientes and what? It's where, it's where uh, Susanna Miller started her school. Um, it's on the second floor, right at the corner of Corrientes, and I'm forgetting the cross street. But it's right downtown. And uh, hmm. anyway, yeah. so, th th so these were, there were four or five clubs where the older dancers were gathering at that point uh there weren't enough of them really for too many more there was only a couple of places on saturday night a couple of places on friday night and then a smattering of places during the week so there was not a big scene mm. i was just gonna say i can't imagine being there without and i wish i could um millions of tourists because i we've been going since 2005 and uh it's just it's it's fun because there's this huge energy of young dancers from all around the world but to imagine this time capsule you're speaking of um is very unique it's, yeah, it's, it's really amazing it to hear about it very unique. and to imagine it and they they really you know they did not believe that tango would return as a social dance they didn't really have much confidence that the younger gener generation was going to take it up and they 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 couldn't really imagine enough younger people to fill a milonga or anything like that. Mm. So all of us in the first generation of what I call the younger generation of revival dancers, we were basically hanging out in the shadow of these older dancers. And, uh, and it was, it was, um, 
it was a mysterious kind of hieroglyphic, the, uh, the social codes and the patterns of the social dancer. Mm. And when, when, um, when we were, as a foreigner, as one of the first foreigners to really immerse myself in the tango scene down there, what I realized was that much of what you learn about the milonga is by osmosis in the milonga. And so in Argentina at that time, the few dancers that were teaching, they, they understood their purpose to be to teach the steps of the dance. Mm -hmm. So if you went to a teacher, you went to increase your vocabulary. Hmm. A, teacher, a teacher didn't have to teach you what the dance was. So, for example, a teacher didn't teach you that there was a line of dance or that there were codes about how to get onto the dance floor or off the dance floor or what constituted appropriate um, behavior on the dance floor or off the dance floor. You or even the, did there like a Baseo and Mirada sort of stuff, which is like takes year, I feel, to like decipher. <laughs> um, I'm right. missing you, you all just, that. You just, you just learn that from being at the Milonga. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and so when you went to a teacher, it was because you wanted to get a right turn or a left turn or a saccada or a boleo or you wanted to work on something. Um, and so it was it was interesting to see the transformation of the tango pedagogy over the years that I spent in Buenos Aires. I, my last visit to Buenos Aires was in the year 2000. Um, I was the victim of a gang attack in 2001. And... Uh, because of injuries in that attack, I was forced to retire from road life. And it happened at the, mm. that was the same, that was the same year that my daughter was born. Um, she'll turn 20 this year. Wow. And uh, so the combination of getting injured while I was on the road, of being tired of road life, and mm -hmm. of having a new child in my life, um, all caused me to decide, well, and also the fact that my parents were getting older and that my dad was suffering from dementia, all of those things conspired for me to retire from road life in, 19, mm. in 2002. And I chose to move here to Western Massachusetts because prior to my life as a tango dancer, I had been a postmodern dancer. And we started a um, dance commune called Earth Dance, which is still open. It's a retreat center in Western Massachusetts. And I had a lot of friends around here. So um, this was the place that I chose to kind of settle in. Make That's home amazing. Again. How long did you do the dance? Like, how long was your dance life before you got into tango? Um, I, 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 I was, um, I was uh, 19 years old in 1975, and going to the State University of New York in Binghamton, New York, mm -hmm. and uh, the man who was in charge of the African dance program was a guy named Percy per Percy Board who was the husband of Pearl Primus, who's actually more famous. <laughs> and uh, I, I walked by a gymnasium and the door was propped open and there were drums coming out of the door and I poked my head in and it was an African dance class. <laughs> and the head drummer motioned me in, sat me down with the drummers and I played the bass drum uh, for the first few classes that I attended. And there were about 40 or 50 dancers in the class. And of those 40 or 50 dancers, there were only two or three men. And I remember that after I sat in the group of men who were drumming, because all the drummers were men, um, by about the third or the fourth class, I couldn't help myself. And I jumped up and got in the back of the line with the other men <laughs> and, uh, and realized that I was that I was fated for dancing and not for um, and not for drumming. And uh, at 
then I tried out all kinds of things at the state university and I still, my interest was peaked, but I still hadn't found what I really liked. And then across the tracks on the other side of the river, uh, a, a modern dance company had taken over a old um, boys and girls club and they were called the American Dance Asylum, which later became the Bill T. Jones and Arnie Zane Company. And um, Bill T. Jones had been a ballet dancer at SUNY Binghamton, where I was going to school. He was about five years older than me. And so I found my way over there and took modern dance and postmodern dance from Bill T. and Arnie and Lois Welk, who were all part of the American Dance Asylum. And so I, I really got a fabulous introduction to improvisational dance and to modern dance. That's amazing. Yeah. You did contact too, I read, which is I became one of a, my favorite I became, things. Yes, then I became a contact dancer and a jazz tap dancer. That's... And uh, though all, all of those things conspired to uh, bring me to Buenos Aires. An another part of my foundation is something called uh, body-mind centering. I studied with a woman named Bonnie Bainbridge-Cohen and learned about anatomy and uh, experiential anatomy. And so I had a uh, smorgasbord of American dance that I taught when I was on the road in Europe. And Zoraida and I had this romance, romantic affair in Europe. And then I was invited to Buenos Aires where her teacher, Anna Ittelman, uh, invited me to teach at the State School of Contemporary Dance at the Teatro San Martin. Wow, and, how nice. And I taught there from 87 until probably 93 or 94, by which time tango had basically taken over my life. Yeah. I wanted to wow. just go into a little bit. You, you were so aware of the importance of these people at this era, and you started producing videos of them teaching like you, you you saw this moment and you captured it which is so amazing to have um and i've seen i have a shoebox i have a box of videos that somebody handed down to me that the bridge the tango series of nito and elba and, and uh, you're working with um and some of them you're working with uh what's her name uh she runs monday nights chico who's the woman i'm uh Oh my Rebecca God! Coleman? No, 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 uh, no, no! In at Vijamalcom. She runs Vijamalcom for many years now. Uh, oh God my God! Vaje, Vaje, Vaje. Luciana. Luciana <laughs> Oh my God! Thank She's you. Such a sweet, amazing person, and I can't remember her freaking name. Yeah. Um, uh, at one point, I had a VCR, and I remember watching a few of these videos. Omar Vega and just these guys uh, at this time. And how did you? It's like you just had this notion that this was and, going to be so important. Yeah. How, how did you before kind of before have that you vision? explain, Adam? I want to add to your thing of like you finding these videos. I've also heard your stories, Daniel, from uh, people who were dancing in New York before social dance was uh, social dance of tango was that famous because it was tango forever tango was very famous and. Uh, Actually, Joe told me the story that he was uh, learning steps, basically, based on stage tango. And then he said, and then Daniel came from Argentina and started like breaking down the dance and started showing us how to improvise. And he like got to piss some people off because like they were just teaching steps and getting us to like memorize choreography and stuff that really didn't work for me and so he was like so grateful that 
you went through that phase and and along with your videos i think like maybe this is something where it also arose from that maybe you saw that this people well, like, in the like, us were not aware of like well, the social like, dance aspect of the dance yeah. Like, like I've told you already, my first dance teacher was uh, Percy Board, who was about 40 years older than me. And uh, later I studied African dance with Tito Sampa, who was another from the, from the Congo. And uh, then when I moved to um, New Paltz from Binghamton, I got involved with the uh, Copacetics, which were the old black tap dancers in New York City. And so I learned how to tap dance from a whole generation of um, older men and women who tap danced. And then uh, the swing dancers, I met the swing dancers and I was friends with Frankie Manning, who was about 60 years older than me. And so by fate, by the time that I had arrived in Argentina, I had already been learning from older dancers for a decade. And so I was very comfortable Um, with the way that older dancers who are street dancers teach, which is that they don't have formal pedagogy. They just kind of show you things, and then you have to listen to them tell stories. And really, I when I was learning how to tap dance and learning how to swing dance, I wasn't that patient, hmm. and I didn't, I didn't keep a record of things, and I didn't understand the level of... Um, wisdom that I was that I was receiving. So by, by the time, I was just lucky that by the time I got to Buenos Aires, I'd already had these experiences. And so when, right. I real, when I realized what I was meeting in Buenos Aires, I was just more moved to try and create some kind of record of it. And I, I had brought a high eight camera with me and I brought boxes of tape with me and I basically just filmed stuff And then later, as we started to make the groups happen, I just brought the cameras along and uh, and brought boxes of tape. And I made a decision that really is haunting me now, 30 years later, which is that basically I just handed cameras and tapes to people and said, film everything. And <laughs> if, you are if you're trying to make a movie, you actually have a storyboard and then you make the clips that you need to complete the story. But if you film everything, then you're left with this nightmare of a project, which is that you have to look at everything to try and find what's good. And mm -hmm. that's, what I, that's what I've been doing for the last 25 years. Oh, God, oh, wow. yeah, the editing of that must be a nightmare. That is crazy. <laughs> well, I've, I'm, I've only gotten through about half of what I actually filmed. Wow. And now when I'm, when I'm able to publish this first version of the archive, there'll be about 200 hours of edited, um, digitized material that'll be available. Wow. And uh, I'm going to be hoping that people in the tango world will be interested enough to subscribe because then I can spend the money that comes in on trying to finish the project. And with luck, maybe I'll finish it during my lifetime. But uh, there's, still, <laughs> there's still an awful lot to do. <laughs> That's amazing, though. Curiosity and you would. Yeah, this sounds really exciting because this is a whole generation that is lost to most people that, you know. Well, it's amazing, like Adam said, at that moment. And like right now, technology videos are like all in our hands all the time. We're not talking about an era like that for you to right. like recognize this moment and start recording it. Uh, you have an amazing archive of it. And then also it seems like you were very in tune with like, I don't know, recognizing what 
you wanted the transferred to the new generation of dancers? Well, as I as I said in my little short bio that I sent you, um, when Frankie Manning kind of like gave birth to the revival of Lindy Hop in New York City, Frankie was in his 80s when he was found by Stephen Mitchell and Aaron Stevens and brought back to the dance world. And by that time, all of his contemporaries had passed. Hmm. So when, when Lindy Hop came back, it was pretty much... Uh, one one genetic line because mm. everybody danced like Frankie for the first 10 or 15 years until finally people started developing their own styles again. At least that's how I see it. I see. And when I arrived in Buenos Aires, what I saw was that there really was not a huge amount of people left from the golden age. 30 years had passed. A lot of people weren't dancing anymore. But there were probably 40 40 or 50 older dancers of significance who were coming back with their partners, mm -hmm. couples to the dance, to the dance halls. And some at the time that I first started, the only class in town was Miguel Bamacera and Nelly Arganyares. Mm -hmm. And Miguel and Nelly were teaching in Canning and they were the only people teaching social tango to the younger generation in 1987, 88, 89. Crazy. And, so the, the the whole concept of Argentine tango as an improvisational social dance was that close to being lost. Wow. wow. But, but, but then shortly thereafter, in 88, 89, Europeans started to arrive. Um, Brigitte and Angelica, uh, Dieter Lange, um, from the United, from, uh, from Holland, there was um, Walter Brave. Uh, I'm, I'm leaving some people out. Um, uh, those two wonderful dancers, uh, from Mustafa and, um, Turkish. They, uh, yeah, Mustafa and his partner who were in Nijmegen, uh, in Holland. Oh, I wish I could remember her name because we did a fabulous performance together. Um, they, the, there was a smattering of Europeans that were starting to arrive and Americans that were starting to arrive. And so all of a sudden there was this interest that perked up on the part of the older dancers and others of them started to teach more. Um, and that included Pupi and uh, his younger partner, Graciela Gonzalez. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Rudolfo and Maria Sierra started to teach and um, well, Pepito and Pepito Avellaneda and um, Antonio Todaro, they were already teaching, but they were teaching more uh, figures for performance. And mm. so they, they kind of gave birth to the modern generation of um, performance dancers that included Miguel Soto and Milena Plebs and um, uh, um, Vanina Bijos and uh, Alejandro Aquino and um, Amazing. Los Firpo, uh, Jorge and Aurora Firpo and um, Los Borges and uh, Carlos Maria Rivarola, Los Dinsel. These were the dancers that performed in the original Tango um, Argentino production on Broadway um, that that gave birth to the revival that you spoke about in New York City. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. and, I, and I would like to talk a little bit more about that. Um, but what I'm going to say is that uh, it, 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 Miguel and Nelly form a, an extremely important part of Tango's social history. And uh, Miguel had several uh, children that are all that have all participated in Tango's revival. Uh, Julio passed away recently. 
Um, yeah. and, and is Ernesto, Miguel Ernesto. Pocho? Is Miguel Pocho and Nelly's Miguel? No, or this is this is, this a is different... the father of the. Julio this is the father father of Julio Balmaceda. Okay, okay, you and, did say Miguel Balmaceda. I forgot. Yeah. Yes, and that sorry. that was my that was my first teacher in Buenos Aires. Uh, I went to Miguel Balmaceda for social tango, and I went to Antonio Todaro for performance tango. And I had to be very careful because if I danced anything that I learned from Miguel in Antonio's studio, he would criticize me. And if I danced anything that I learned from Antonio in Miguel's studio, he would criticize me. And they both threatened to disown me if I danced with anybody else. And uh, <laughs> so it was it was a challenge. Um, uh, so in New York City, the um, the way that I see the history of the dance is kind of like this. I don't think that the Argentine dancers that were in Tango Argentina, which, by the way, included Vito Lasso and Elvira and Juan Carlos Copes and Maria Nieves, both all those four dancers were competent, capable social tango dancers. They were fabulous older dancers. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that they ever believed that it was worth teaching the social dance outside of Buenos Aires, because even in Buenos mm -hmm. Aires, there wasn't enough interest in it. And... I don't think that anybody in that generation ever believed that social tango would make a comeback. So and they around were, the world that way, the way it has. They were, te they, were, they were performing in a show. And as I understand the economics of it, the dancers from Argentina who were performing in the traveling shows were paid in Argentine pesos. Oh, wow. Which means that if, if you were traveling in New York, if you were in Shit. New York or Berlin or Tokyo and you were being paid a salary in Argentine money, that means you couldn't even afford to go out for a cheap meal in these big cities. So, so your way, millions became cents. That's the opposite right. and, of and what so happened to you. The way, the way that those dancers made money when they were on tour was by going to the local ballroom dance studios and teaching tango. And then they would charge dollars for the private lessons and the classes. And that was how they supported themselves wow. when, they were living, when they were living in New York. And um, the thing was that... Um, that in ballroom studios, the, the foxtrot and the waltz were considered the primary social dances. And then there was something called theater arts, which was when somebody lifted somebody up in the air and dropped them and twirled them around their waist. And they went into a split. <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah. And at the beginning, the way that the ballroom dancers understood the Argentine tango was that it was a performance acrobatic dance with ganchos and boleos and jumps and lifts and sitting in the lap so the the stars of the show would go to the ballroom studios and they would teach performance figures to the social dancers in new york city who would then perform the material in the showcases that would happen at the ballroom studio so mm. tango was considered a theater arts performance yeah and that was what social dancers in the united states were taught. And when I was first teaching at the Sandra Cameron studio back in um, the early 90s, I remember that there was this 50-year-old, um, 50-something-year-old woman who was just one of these fabulous ladies who was in all of the classes where we were learning how to foxtrot. And she was just so helpful and so fabulous and such a pure social dancer. And I remember she was helping me learn how to do the foxtrot. And I said to her, why, why, why don't you want to dance the tango? And she said, well, because it's all kicks and jumps and things like that. I don't want to hurt anybody and I don't want to get hurt myself. I'm too old for that. 
Hmm. And I and I and I said to her, and I thought to myself, "Wow, you're, we're really missing the whole point, which is that the Argentine tango is based in this pure social dance, which is in essence the Argentine foxtrot." Hmm. So, um, so in those first times when I I did not have a partner when I came to New York, and I met Rebecca Schulman early on at Dance Sport, and she loved the tango and got involved with helping me teach the tango, but. Rebecca had only had a, fo- a few months of class when I invited her to go out to the local tango scene in New York City. And when we arrived at the dance, there were all of these people dancing on the spot. So there was a there was a dance floor full of people dancing the tango, and every dance couple owned their spot on the dance floor. And there was no there was no circulation of the couples, and they were all doing gancho gancho boleo, jump, lift, sit in the lap jump off the lap, gancho boleo, gancho boleo. And that was all the, the steps that they had learned from the Argentine stage stars. And the head of the, um, Adam, did you find out the name of the the famous head of the Argentine society in the 1980s, whose name I still can't remember? He was responsible no. for, he was responsible for getting the statue of Carlos Gardel put up in Queens somewhere. Um, in any case, uh, they had a good DJ and they were playing real Argentine music and I recognized it from Buenos Aires and Rebecca had learned how to do Salida, Malbastiti. Rebecca said yeah. maybe it's Malbastiti. Yeah. I think so. It was Malbastiti. And he was the president of the Argentine Society. And so we, we, uh, I had taught Rebecca how to do Argentine Salida and basic right turn, basic left turn, Corrida. And we... We proceeded to dance around the edge of the entire dance floor where all of these people were doing their performance routines in the center of the dance floor. And that was when <laughs> um, Mario and Lilia and Carlos and Cati Funes and mm. some of the other Argentines in New York ran up to us and said, who are you? Where did you come from? Where did you learn how to dance? <clears throat> I love and those, that. those Argentine dancers became, in essence, our godparents as we started the first real tango practices in New York City and as we... Um, started Milongas, where we encouraged people to dance socially. So did you live in New York for a while during that time then? I moved to New York when I, um, when I came back from Buenos Aires after, from 88 to 91, I mostly lived in Buenos Aires, and then in 91 I moved back to New York City, and that was when I started teaching at Dance Sport, and, um, and, uh, got involved in the tango scene in New York. I, did I answer your question? Yeah, and Rebecca's calling in, but Rebecca, you have some background noise, so let's see. Are you still there? Hello? Hello, Rebecca? Let me try to... Me? Hello. Hey, Hello. yes. Oh, great. Hi, everybody. This Hi, is Rebecca. <laughs> I'm so glad to listen to Danny again and learn so much from him again, even 20 years later. And I love the perspective. Am I supposed to put a headset in? Yes. That's why we're getting the background, I think. And how is John going to hear everything? He's standing Well, he, he might need to be on a separate phone in another room or on headphones too. Because we're hearing echo right now. Sorry, John. Yes, much better. Oops, let me unmute her again. Hello. Hello. There we go. 
Okay. Yeah, you sound much better. Well, I just wanted to jump in and and um, reminisce about that night that we went dancing, me and Daniel, in New York in Queens. Is that okay? Because sure. I remembered yes. another detail about it, which was that I really didn't know very much at all. But the thing that I think made me look different from most of the dancers there was I had been told, maybe by Danny, to keep my feet on the floor. So mm. everyone was <laughs> dancing these forward ochos with their feet coming up, like kicking up in the air on every wow. single ocho, if you can imagine. Wow. And, uh, and, and my feet were on the ground. I was just sliding around everywhere that I went. And I think that's what made me look distinctive. <laughs> that's all. And you guys went around the room as opposed to be in one spot. I guess we did that. That wasn't my job that evening, so I don't remember that distinction so well. <laughs> I was just skating. We were just, yeah, we were just following the lead. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, funny. how many dancers are we talking about uh, in the floor? I would guess, I would guess there were probably about ten or fifteen couples that would dance at any one wow. time. And you know, wow. they had to be careful because they were doing all of these ganchos and boleos, and they could hurt each other. Yeah, absolutely. That's sure why they, they can't move doing it too. <laughs> wow. That's crazy. So you guys kind of like brought New York Tango out of the darkness and into uh, a, a, a real improvised tango community, so to speak. Well, you know, the, the, um, as I understand it, Danella and Maria Bastone had preceded us a little bit, and they had mm. served as translators for the dancers in Tango Argentino. And they had a system for teaching improvisation similar to what I'd seen in Buenos Aires, which was that you would learn a series of steps and everybody would learn the same series of steps. So you'd learn to have, um, you'd learn a salida and then you'd learn a basic right turn and a basic left turn and a basic corrida. And mm -hmm. you'd have these various things that everybody knew how to do. And the idea was that if you accumulated enough vocabulary, you could start interchanging the steps. Um, mm. But I, I had come to tango as a professional dance pedagogue and with a specialty in improvisation. And when I was in Argentina, I saw the tango as a, a, a movement language that was being conjugated on the floor by the dancers. So I, I saw things being broken down into elements like ochos and walks and turns mm -hmm. and that they were being recombined by the dancers that you could take a relatively limited vocabulary and recombine it in all different kinds of ways to create mm -hmm. an, an improvisational dance it seems kind of obvious to us now of course but that but that but back in those days most of the dance teachers were uh, were sharing a um a, a regimen of choreographed short figures that once mm. people mastered the figures then they could start recombining them and if you studied it long enough it led you to improvisation yeah. so it is you got there either way I but, see. but I, but i know that um that i i was influential in helping especially people from outside of argentina understand that if you broke things down into the elemental vocabulary it was easier to understand how to combine and recombine things and to get a hat to kind of get get control over your vocabulary and then ha create your own dance as opposed to dance the choreography of someone right. else that was the object and so i watched your ted talk uh, today and there are a few things that you said i mean i loved 
all of it that you said, but especially a few things that I pulled out for me was, um, let me put this right. One, you said freedom without discipline is a chaos, which I love, and rules are made to be broken. And even the way, like, yeah. Those are aphorisms I live by. (laughs) Yes, and I would love you to talk more about that. As uh, life principles and as tango principles, uh, however you wish, but I, I thought it was a well, brilliant you, you way have, to put it. Another way of saying it is you, you have to learn the rules so that you can break the rules. Exactly. And, um, and that's part of the problem, I think, with people who rush into learning anything is that they want to gain competence and sophistication really fast, so they don't take the time to fully explore the elemental kind of underlying structure of something. The more time you take to do that, then the more articulate and competent you'll be when you finally get to speak for yourself. Yes. True in every art form, or I think true in everything. Like, I love how uh, Picasso used to be an amazing, like, very realistic drawings in his earlier times. Yes, and, anybody like, really that... trained the skills before he could break the rules. And I lived to... in Barcelona for a short time before I moved to Argentina, and um, there's a, muse- a Picasso museum in Barcelona has is almost exclusively of his early work. The pink and, one and of the, blue drawings, I think, right? There's Well, like, one of yeah. the things that amazed me was just how wonderful he was at realistic portraiture and yeah. drawing. And, yeah. and so it helps you understand why he could go so far off later in his life, because he had really learned, he had really learned how to be a traditional artist yeah. before, before he went off the deep end. It's amazing to me, but that, and there is so much more value in that. I, I mean, I think nowadays we see so much more of like, well, I'm not really interested in the realistic way of drawing, so then I'll just go for the other. And it just seems like a lazy path in a way, because um, well, it's, one it's... other thing you were saying is in your talk was like, that there is a practice that we do to get the skills of something that we're doing, which takes most of the work for years and years until we can get to the other stage. Yes, uh, the, what, what I was saying was that the, there are three steps to mastery. The first, the first step is to learn the elements of the thing that it is you're trying to do. And then the second step is to practice. And don't even think about the third step because exactly. the, second, the, the second will take you so long. <laughs> exactly. And like, exactly. And this is like I recently did my yoga training. So in that too, like the practice is the main element. Like you can't go into yoga thinking, okay, I'm doing this to meditate or to reach this bliss. You can't get there by saying that that's where you want to get there. You just need to do the practice, and that that's will correct. open up the path for you to reach, if you do ever. Uh... Well, and that's the milong getaway. The thing that the older dancers always said in Buenos Aires is, "Okay, you need to walk your kilometers 
on the mm-hmm. dance floor. You're, you're the product of the kilometers that you walk on the dance floor. Speaking of them, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the all of the videos that you shot. You Working with these old timers who maybe had never shot a video, had never taught a class. Um, what was that like to work with some of these characters and and how much did you have to direct and um, sort of help shape the direction of the classes and how much how much was just naturally a part of how they did things? So so much. It's a good question. So much so much of what I did in Buenos Aires was um, by the seat of my pants because I call myself an accidental anthropologist. I really had no training in trying to preserve or to document what was going on. I brought cameras with me. I hired people to shoot stuff. I interacted with film crews and sound crews. And the earlier the video of mine that you see, the the worse the quality is because the we didn't have money for highly technical stuff, and um, I didn't understand how to do lighting or sound. So uh, a lot of my earlier work is really rudimentary. Um, but one thing that was really important to me, wh- well, th- there was a couple of things. One, most of the instructional video that I had seen previously of other dance forms were slow, pedantic things where they showed the same thing over and over again from five different angles. Mm. And... Um, and where there was voiceovers explaining stuff, but not, well, describing stuff, but not explaining it. Hmm. And so I decided that my that I would put myself as a live translator on the screen with them mm-hmm. and that you would hear them teach in their own voice and that the simultaneous translation to English would be happening, which I think in retrospect was a very good decision. And um I also decided that we would shoot everything from one angle and then turn it around and shoot it from the back. Mm. But that that was it, that we, we would get, we would let people depend on their ability to rewind mm-hmm. and we, we wouldn't overshow them stuff. So I always felt that um, that every video would be an hour long and that there would be enough material on a video that it would constitute what you might have learned in about 10 or 15 private lessons. Mm-hmm. So So I was trying to create a kind of generous quantity of material but also to have the teachers teach in their own voice with simultaneous translation and rebecca are you still there she is i think um just because we used to joke about it years later that um we made a great mistake well it's not really a mistake it's a joke but the argentines particularly the older ones but a lot of the young people as well they speak a kind of spanish which is the equivalent of a Brooklyn accent in English. Hmm. And we and we jokingly said that we should have translated them into a Brooklyn accent. <laughs> because uh, yes. it would have that been would have a been much brilliant. more accurate translation. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> because that's what they were saying. They were saying, like, you take uh, you take her and you put her over here, and when you get over here, you do the concha. <laughs> I really and, wish you did that. Uh, that's, that's hilarious. And, that's so funny, Danny. I'm still here. I'm just muted more or less most of the time, but that's hilarious. I don't know. Oh my god. Mm. That's hilarious. Were there any kind of like outtakes, any sort of like silly things that happened? Well, being that you mentioned our mutual friend Luciana, you'll notice mm-hmm. that um in the video that we did with um 
Omar Vega. We had Luciana accompany Omar Vega. And um, mm-hmm. and Luciana has this big head of hair with this huge uh, curly, yes. curly, big, big head of hair. And she tied it up in a ponytail with the with the, the hair behind her head. But it was a big hair behind her head. <laughs> and um, she was standing. She was standing between Omar and I. And he would speak and she would turn her head and the big head of hair would flip in my face. And she would look <laughs> at him, speak in Spanish, and then she would turn her head and the head would flip into his face while I translated. And on her face, <laughs> she showed that she completely didn't, beli- didn't believe either of us. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> and so we did have to retake a whole bunch of that um, video once we realized that we were, that we were basically doing the Luciana show. And, um, and I wish that I had been um, cleverer about that. And I wish that I had saved more of the moments in the studio. But, you know, filming in a studio and having a film crew was expensive, even though we were of doing course. it on the cheap. And so what we do have now, which is very interesting, when, when the archive comes out, I have we, we had the, the Hyatt camera with us f- for the classes and interviews that we did between 1993 and 2000 when we ran all of these tours. So we have about probably 80 or 90 hours of class that was taught live and another maybe 50 or 60 hours of interviews with various people. And um, that footage has not been edited per se. So when, when we show that footage in the archive, basically you get to attend class. And you get to attend the interview. So there are some parts that drag a little bit and some parts that are inaudible or unintelligible. But there's just all of that footage is filled with remarkable, magical moments wow, where, where so people cool. were really on. And, and really, I think we're going to just leave it up to the viewer to sort through that material. Because like I said, one of my mistakes, if you can call it that, was to film everything. And, um, <laughs> Which and, is amazing, and, I think. Good yeah. mistake. So for the real Tango Files, you're just going to be able to sit there and watch the entire presentation. For example, let's talk Tete and Maria for a second. Because Tete became very famous with his partner Silvia Seriani. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But, but Tete came on the scene with his partner Maria Vigilobos. And um, Tete and Maria, we met them in 1987 or 88 for the first time. And for the first four or five years that Tete and Maria were on the scene, they would go to all the practices of all the teachers and all the different milangas, and they would only dance with each other every night, all night long. Hmm. And we begged them to teach us how to dance, and they were all like, no, go study with Mingo or study with Gustavo or go, go, to, go to Miguel. They, they didn't want to um, step on the toes of the people that were hmm. making a living teaching. And I think part of it was that... Um, Tete would have described himself as an atorante, which essentially means a bum. And Mm. he was really a street creature. Um, (laughs) But Maria Vigilogos had a very interesting story. She, um, when she was younger, she was the, she was the um, young bride, kind of the trophy bride of Annie Beltroilo's lawyer. And so her husband was in his 50s and she was in her 20s. And when they were married, she hung out with the Annabelle Troilo Orchestra, with Astor Piazzolla, with all of the people who were in the tango scene for what constituted the greatest dance band of all time. Wow. 
Mm-hmm. And and then she, as she grew into her 50s and 60s, all of them died. Oh, so wow. when in 1980, in the 1980s, the late 1980s, when most of the tango scene for young people was happening at the Practica at Cochabamba, which was run on Mondays and Fridays by Gustavo and Olga, and on mm-hmm. Tuesdays and Thursdays by Mingo and Esther, mm-hmm. that for those four nights, all of the young generation were at Cochabamba, and, and Tete and Maria would come to Cochabamba. In fact, Maria owned a house, three or four houses up from the, the uh, cafe where we had the dancing. And um, Maria was, she was a woman of means. She owned a house, she had money. She was essentially taking care of Tete. Mm-hmm. And so they, they dressed well and they were very elegant and they hung out together and they were they sat at a table together and then they danced only with each other during all of those original years. And we called them our favorite couple. Now, Tete was a product of what we now know of to be the petiteros, which were the dancers of the small dance floors, which were the hidden away places where tango happened during the military years in basements and in living rooms and in small places where people would gather to dance when basically gathering was frowned upon and it was dangerous for people to carry gather in big crowds and there were no milongas or big cafes or big restaurants or big clubs the way that there had been in the 1940s and 50s so tete was a product of these small dance floors which produced the dancing which we now refer to as close embrace and when tete and maria were dancing in Cochabamba back in 88, 89, 90, 91, 92, um, they were dancing what we would now call close embrace and nobody else was dancing that style. Everybody else was learning from the dancers of Orquiza like Miguel and Nelly and Pupi and Graciela and uh, Mingo and Esther. And um, so everybody was dancing, not what today we would call an open style, like a stage style. They were not dancing open. They were dancing close, but with a paper-thin space between the body of the man and the woman. Mm-hmm. Um, but Tete and Maria were dancing apilado, which means stuck together. Yeah. And and I have a theory about this, and that is that the dancers who danced in the close embrace style in the small clubs in the 1950s and 60s when tango was hidden away, they didn't have the dynamic whirling and turning and um, kind of super melodic dancing that characterized Tete and Maria's dancing. I believe that what Tete and Maria did was they created the first style of what today we would refer to as Tango Nuevo. And I disagree maybe with a lot of other people, but I think that what today we call close embrace tango was not the tango that the, that the majority of the older bailarines de tango were handing down to us they mostly frowned on the apilado style because they felt that it was too vulgar vulgar because the Mm. bodies were touching but tete and maria took that close embrace apilado style and they turned it into something of such elegance and remarkable character and and maria was responsible for that more than anything because she was the sophisticated kind of upper class woman who was designing that style with the man who brought it from the small cafes of his generation. Um, And unfortunately, Maria and Tete broke up in 1992, I think. 
And Tete found Sylvia, and he ended up traveling around the world. He taught um, Pina Bausch how to dance in Germany. Mm -hmm. He ended up having a big he ended up having a big success. Um, and Maria, then she was a well, they they were all chain smokers, but Maria died shortly thereafter in the mid nineties, mm. and so she never she never got recognized mm. for the fact that she was an equal participant in creating the dance style that we presently call close embrace or apilado. Amazing. And, um, Thank you so for sharing in, this. Yeah, this amazing. is so fascinating. I mean, I, I, so, I've always been an amazing fan of watching Tete and the way he moves, but I had no idea of this history. Well, let me say that when the archive comes out, there are two full-length classes that Tete and Maria taught to our group. So you actually get to see Maria teach. Wow. And then there's interviews with the two of them, although he does most of the talking. And then um, there's... a uh, a performance that I filmed with my with my camera when they were performing for our group that is just fabulous. And then there's also some private lessons that I took with Rebecca and with Elena Roldan and with um, Viviana Pada mm -hmm. uh, accompanied me for these lessons with Tete and Maria. And uh, so there's there's some private lesson footage that's also quite remarkable. That's, um, amazing. that's so amazing. I can't wait. I mean, I was about to ask you within all these like people that you worked with and videotaped like would you like to share one story and like i'm i'm so glad you knocked the it out story of the and shared it with us yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> exactly it's we amazing. did get to work with tete briefly um, yeah we were lucky we were very lucky and it was really cool because he just basically chased us around the room for an hour yeah and told us to keep going keep don't think dance don't think dance don't think dance and um it, it was, was awesome. amazing. It was amazing. I mean, Daniel, this was the moment where we were fairly new and we were not good at dancing close with each other. Like there were, you know, when you start dancing, there are some people you find that easier with. And Adam and I were like now in Argentina, they're together taking lessons where we could not really enjoy dancing close and embrace with each other that much. And it was through Tete's lessons that we got through that hump. Because we were running our, be... for our lives together. In an yeah, for two, we, two hours we were being chased by this man with a big belly yelling at us like, don't think, dance, dance, and twirling around us and of course, with his energy, which was amazing. And of course, every time he would show, and nobody went to his group classes. We were the only ones there because everybody was going to Chicho and all the new hot dancers. And... And I just remember, like, he would show us a step, and then he would show us a step, but he would show a totally different step. Like, he just yeah. kept forgetting what he showed us. It didn't well, matter. Like, it wasn't so much about how precise the details of it was. He wanted you to get a feeling of... Yeah, he was just riffing. It was, it was great. Well, um, so let me tell another story, which is that... Um, so... Here we are, this relatively small group of young people dancing the tango in, in Buenos Aires at dances that were organized by the older generation in clubs like Canning and Sin Rumbo, where, um, where there was a bar and everybody was dressed up with a suit and a tie if you were a man and a dress if you were a woman and everybody had to obey the codes of the milonga, etc. And the, the youngsters, they decided that... Um, that finally there was enough of us that they decided that they wanted to have a dance where the older people didn't come. Mm. 
And I don't remember exactly who it was who's had the brilliant idea that in order for the older people not to come, we had to dance in a squat or a building that was an abandoned building that was so dirty and so uncomfortable that the older dancers would never go there. And so this was the beginning of what later became known as the Pare Cultural. And, um, and the first dances that um, there was one dance in La Calle Mexico, which was on a dirt floor. And uh, the youngsters who played guitars would show up and play live music on guitar and the dancers would dance until they were covered in dirt. <laughs> and um, yeah. then, then we moved to uh, the famous first Pare Cultural in... Uh, Oh, maybe Rebecca could help me remember the name of the street. Chacabuco. Uh, in Chacabuco, uh, where it was... A, it was I love that Rebecca is like the... The building was a squat. And when you walked into the building, they had jerry-rigged the electricity. You definitely did not want to go to the bathroom while you were there. And um, <laughs> Shit. you walked in and they had they had somehow coolers with ice and beers in cans that they were serving. And then um, the dance floor was covered with these plywood pieces of wood that covered the holes in the dance floor because the, the squat building had holes in the floor. And um, and that was the place where the young people's dancing in Argentina really took off. And wow. it was a large, it was a large environment. It felt like you were in some strange theatrical set, and uh, all of the young crowd would show up. It would, it would, the, the best dancers, the stage dancers would show up, and all of the youngsters who were pretenders to the to the next generation of dancers would show up, and the foreigners started to show up there, and only a very few of the older dancers would go because it was really an uncomfortable place to be. There was no place to sit, hmm. and. Uh, Tete was one of Tete was one of the people that was always there, and um, and I remember back in those days uh, that there was this actor who showed up and he had long hair all the way down to the middle of his back, and uh, he had a big giant beard, and his partner was this tall, thin young woman who was a head taller than him, and the two of them had learned from Tete and they were pushed together into apilado and they danced for hours and hours and hours only with each other all night long for several years there at the beginning and they were students of Tete and Maria hmm. and that was Chicho and his partner Laura wow. um, and they had real practice like when we talked earlier about the second stage of mastery practice mm -hmm. they were they were out dancing with each other every night for years and later when Chicho discovered Gustavo Noveda and moved over to that crowd and became kind of masterful at the Nuevo vocabulary that they were discovering. I think that the, the reason why Chicho became so successful at what he did was that he had this rich kind of history and musicality and interpretation that he got from all of those hundreds of hours of dancing close embrace with his girlfriend. Well, you know, it's we talked about this earlier about Picasso like becoming going so far out but having studied the roots and being so good at the roots and there's a there's a lot of people trying to jump the line in tango learning from teachers teaching more modern steps whatever you want to refer to them as but but without that root of just dancing close dancing together dancing a lot putting a lot of time in um it's never quite the same it's never quite there 
you know, as you mentioned, like Chicho put in hundreds of hours, thousands of hours, just getting to know his body and his partner's body and how they move so close together. He really, he had, he had the feeling of the dance. He understood the connected feeling of the dance in a really yeah. deep way mm-hmm. before he, before he even looked good at it. Hmm. Um, and I will say this, that, uh, the older dancers used to look at the, um, the older dancers used to look at the younger dancers dancing and it used to be rather mysterious why they would like certain dancing and not like other dancing. And they would often say of the people who were dancing the fancy steps, they would say, that's really beautiful, but that's not tango. Would they <laughs> use the and, word mugre? Well, mugre, refer, these... mugre refers to kind of like dirty or sloppy. Yeah, but I, I've, I've heard like from older generation that like, yeah, this looks beautiful and it's so refined and like the lines are beautiful, but the mugre isn't there, meaning yeah, like the imperfections I, I, of the dance that actually like give you some of the feelings because maybe the new dancers are striving so much for the aesthetic of it that the real depth and the dirt and the grime of the dance is missing. Well, I can understand, I can understand that interpretation of that, but the milongueros that I studied from, it was not so much about the... the, the um, the analogy was not so much with mugre or with dirt as it was with connection. I so see. it was something about like if you watched a couple dance and something was passing between them, something emotional mm-hmm. was passing between them, then the older dancers would say that's tango. Mm-hmm. And and at least my generation of milongueros, the ones that I knew at the beginning in the 80s, they were very proper in their behavior. They dressed very smartly and they um, were very polite and very proper in their behavior on the dance floor. And I don't, you know, in retrospect, I don't necessarily think that that was necessarily the best way to be on the dance floor. And Mm -hmm. maybe it had something to do with the fact that they were coming back to dancing after so many years of military rule and so many years of being prohibited from dancing. Um, But they they took it very seriously and they were um, insulted by anything that would degrade or um, embarrass them, their their dancing. So I think that for that generation, for that very first generation of the revival, they were more concerned with the feeling Feeling. that passed between two dancers who were really connected to one another. Although Mm -hmm. I don't know that they ever were very good at describing it, which is why I say those of us that were on the side trying to understand why they liked certain things and they didn't like other things, I'm not sure that we totally got it. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I can see how when you when you went to Argentina 10 or 20 years later, that if there were older dancers that were that were alive, then the whole ambiance of the of the scene transformed because of the huge presence of youngsters and of foreigners. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I could see how an, an older dancer in that context could might describe that. might describe what we're talking about as something sloppier or dirtier mm-hmm. rather than the kind of um, snappy quick steps of the performance dancer mm-hmm. and the sharp movements and the ganchos mm-hmm. and the boleos and all of the technique and adornment and decoration so i because at the beginning way back when when i was there there wasn't a lot of that there wasn't a lot of sharp snappy figures and decorations that would happen if you went to antonio todaro's studio or to pepito avejanera's studio you'd see 
some of the famous um, performance dancers practicing and you'd realize that there was that kind of movement and then you'd see it if you went to the tango shows in San Telmo. But it was not appropriate and the young dancers knew that it was not appropriate to do that on a social dance floor filled with old timers. Yeah. You, you know, there's this wonderful, if you, if you see the movie Tango Bar, which stars Raul Julia, there is this one scene in that movie that was filmed of the Milongueros, and they, 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 they got together six or seven of the best older couples at that time, which was 1986, I believe. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they put them in a room, in a salon, and they started out filming only the feet. Hmm. And all of these dancers were over 60. Hmm. And so you see the women of the, the women were wearing spectacular shoes and the men had these patent leather, really fine shoes and they were moving their feet so delicately. And so you thought you were looking at the feet of young people and oh. then they pull away at <laughs> the second it. half of the performance and you see that it's all older couples dancing. And you realize that this is what I, when I, when I first encountered the tango, this is, this is what you saw on the social dance floor, all of these incredibly nuanced and subtle decorations, which is why I suppose I, I, I was taught that a woman had to keep her feet on the floor, which is why Rebecca learned that from me when I came back to New York City and why all of those Argentines ran over to see what who Rebecca had learned from because she mm-hmm. was she was being nuanced and delicate the way that a real a real social dancer was supposed to be. I see. It's so interesting. Like, um, I don't know if this is the right way, uh, right moment to direct this conversation. But when you're also saying, like, when they came out of this um, restrained moment of not having tango in their lives, and they go back to tango, and what they are looking to find is this feeling between the couple to see to find the tango that they see as real tango and now we're all going through a similar experience of having been deprived from tango for a year and a half now and we're gonna go back to this and I want to link this also to another moment in your TED talk from today because you were talking about bringing tango to education system as a means to bring touching and communication and the skills of leading and following to this environment where everything is becoming much more computerized and uh, all of that. And now, like we're coming from a year and a half of being in front of a screen mainly, isolated from people, not just from the dance. And, um, and I don't know, where are you seeing all this? And because you were also saying that you've been spending time yes thank you uh, on this subject uh i i'm sorry i'm like missing the rest of my words right now but i think it's a good way to lead into that moment and compare the two the history part of it and this today well so what i think tango brings to our modern world is a, an opportunity to to um, study the powerful success of the binary gender relationship. Um, 
And, and, and I say this as a feminist and as someone who supports queer culture and, and supports the idea that every dancer should learn both parts to the dance, both lead and follow. That's not because I think of myself as a radical. I think of myself as a traditionalist. In the old days, in the 1940s, men learned with men, mm -hmm. women learned with women. Exactly. And really, I think all dancers practiced both parts before they ever went to the milonga, where by ritual, the men were supposed to be the leaders and the women were supposed to be the followers. In the 1990s, when tango came back in Argentina, the young women were a generation of feminist women who had been um, raised as dancers taking modern and ballet class. And that made them very distinct from their elder, their elders, the women who had preceded them. In the 1940s, it was said that all of the best dancers were men because they played football, what we call soccer in the United States. Um, and so it was very common for the men to be athletes in the dance and for the rare woman who was really skilled to be able to dance. When, when tango came back in the 1990s, the situation was reversed. Most of the talented dancers coming back to tango were women who had grown up in modern and ballet class. Mm. And the men, the men were street dancers and they were not as good or as talented as the women. Mm -hmm. And I think that that generation of women were also feminist for the first time in Argentina, mm. much, much like in the 1950s here in the United States. And um, they insisted on coming to the practice which I think was a feminist idea. It was a good idea that women could come to the practice as opposed to just at the milonga. The problem was that when the women came to the practice in the 1990s, that then the practices became like milongas. The women only followed and the men only led because in front of members of the other gender, it was mm. not considered appropriate to dance the other part. Uh -huh. So one of the things that I brought to the tango as a pedagogue, because I had been teaching at the State School of Modern Dance, was I said, every I said, men and women can dance together. That's the, or men and women can learn together. That's the modern thing. But the traditional thing is that every dancer should learn how to lead and follow. And that's how we hone our skills. And when you learn both skills, you become better at your own skill. Now, I know that there are people in the tango world who disagree with me. There are, there are plenty of older generation dancers who say that a woman who learns how to lead can never follow, and a man who learns how to follow can never lead. I just have to say that as a professional dancer of 40 years and as a professional teacher, I disagree with that. I think mm -hmm. that, that the more that you learn of the other role, role yeah. the more yeah. that you understand the nuance of your own role, and more Absolutely. importantly, we help each other as we dance. So yeah. a, dance, a more experienced follower can help a, a less experienced leader succeed by, by, by back leading. And I think back leading is a, is a very astute and high level skill. And yeah. a, a leader who's really good can make a follower who is a beginner look better because they are what I call front following them, which means that if you understand the other person's part, perhaps better than they do, that you can actually transmit it to the other person, even if they don't consciously understand what's going on. Hmm. So if we, if we take that, I'm introducing the idea by saying that the idea of learning both roles is not a modern radical idea. It's the traditional pedagogy. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. That's my opinion. Yeah. No, I, I love the way you brought that into the past and the, situations where it was always woman with woman, man with man, until they were out to 
go to a so social. So what I consider to be modern, what's radical, what's modern, is that men and women can go to class together. That's、mm-hmm. a new thing. <laughs> you, the, that 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 the learning environment can include both men and women, which then raises a whole lot of other questions about gender, because if we are going to learn together, and if women are going to, because you see, part of the traditional idea, if men were learning by themselves, women were learning by themselves, and they came together at the milanga, was that they didn't talk about each other's part when they were、mm-hmm. together. And I always, I when I teach tango these days, I always say to the women, I take the well because men and women are learning together. I make us all women, and then I hide my mouth so that only the women. Keep in mind, we're men and women together,、mm-hmm. and we're all being the women. And then I say to the women, all of us being the women, that you are a hundred percent in charge of everything that happens in the dance. That you have to take care of him. He's going to get everything wrong, and you have to do <laughs> the dance for both of you. And then I make everybody into the man, and again we hide our mouth and we say to all of the men, "You are the boss. You're in charge of everything. She does everything exactly the way you tell her to." So, ideally, I, I know that the Milangueros said to me that it, the dance is fifty-fifty, which is that, it, and that that really is a testament to the. Idealism and the equality of the dance—that it's that it's both partners equally participating. But when I teach, I like to say that it's a hundred, a hundred, that each、mm-hmm. partner believes that they can be in charge of both partners. Yeah, and、I、that、agree. and that when two people who are a hundred percent in charge of everything meet and figure it out together, that's the tango that we're trying to reach. Yeah, and and, and that's I think the dialogue. That's the dialogue, and I think that that comes out of. The opportunity to practice embodying the other person's role—that if you are、mm. a man and you're used to leading, that you have at least the embodiment experience of embracing the follower's part, and if you're a woman and you're used to following, that you at least have an embodiment experience of the leader's part, because you're more likely to be empathetic and to be、um, less judgmental and more accepting of the errors that the other person makes, because. Improvisation. You know、like. Improvisation、yeah. really is the managing of constant errors.、Mm-hmm. It's like we,、exactly. we, make, we make mistakes all the time, and it's not the mistakes is not what's important. It's how we manage the mistakes together and and create something out of our mistakes that is pleasant and enjoyable. Yeah, it's exactly. I mean, this is like what we always tell beginners too. Like, there is no mistakes. Like what? What we're like? Dance is all about making the mistakes not look like mistakes, basically, because you're communicating, and if the communication and the listening is there and clear, then no mistake is actually felt like a mistake.、Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so, so I want to jump in. I'm sorry.、Um, I just want to jump、ahead. in because we're keeping you, and I wanted to get into the topic of. You wanted to discuss your idea of of. Tango、oh, after COVID,、um, and I, I just wanted to get to that point before we wrap it up.、Um, okay, so let had... me let me just let me、mm-hmm. just I'll I'll segue from the previous point into that point,、mm-hmm. which is that、um, I I've spent the last fifteen years teaching college, and in that fifteen years I've seen four generations of college students, and、um, 
the most recent generation of college students, the ones that were just graduating before the pandemic, are actually the first generation, the first generation of young people that have had screens in their lives since the first grade. So they grew up as young children on the phone and using a smartphone and understanding how that works. And now they're graduating college. And this is this is something unique in history, really, because it's the first totally digital generation. And um, over the course of the four generations that I've taught in college, what I have seen anecdotally is a diminishing ability to have normal, what I would consider normal social skills. And that um, with the with the greater and greater reliability, uh, relying on social media and on screen time in order to conduct the pace of their lives, there's a, a corollary in a diminishing of physical intimacy skills and social skills that you can see very evidently when we create social dancing for young people at that in that age group. And um, I found that the tango was a bit intellectual and challenging for new coming dancers. So in the last years that I've been in the colleges, we also introduced this game from the Cuban salsa called the Roeda, which is the passing of partners around in a circle to help create community. And it really was very effective. And young dancers really enjoy the community oriented social experience of passing partners around where everybody gets to dance with everybody. And of course, because it was my world, I had everybody learn how to lead and everybody learn how to follow. So when you had a group of leaders passing a group of followers around, there might be males and females who are leading and males and females who are following. So you would get all different kinds of um, gender connections between the people. And I should add, because I don't want to be I don't want to be inappropriate or incorrect, that there are plenty of people in this present present generation of dancers who are embracing non-binary expressions of gender mm -hmm. and and people who are non-binary in their expressions of gender still need to learn how to lead and follow meaning that they need to learn how to embody the archetypal male roles. female traditional roles so that they can find the way to express their gender curiosity or their alternative gender in in the process of being part of a dance group well it's also and to be able to express the difference of their gender and their role to us, the, like, because we, I mean, th that's the way we're going to understand this new generation of uh, genders that are being expressed because it's, it's, it's so hard to imagine that. And I think like you said, they need to go into that role maybe to be able to then express themselves. To so, us. so now, so now the next, the next step in this thinking process for me is that with the pandemic, hopefully coming to an end and us returning to some semblance of the lives that we led before it, it occurs to me that there are certain very low quality ways in which people learn social behavior in our world. Like for example, going out to eat at a restaurant or going shopping in a mall or um, going out and hanging out in a park or going to a concert. There are so many ways in which we are socialized 
to be in physical proximity and contact with other people. And I'm not necessarily saying that these are very high-level ways of learning how to be intimate with other people. But post-pandemic, we're going to have even less of them. The, um, the number of restrictions and the changes to our behavior in what we came, what we thought were normal environments, those are going to change. And on top of that, we're all addicted to screens the way that we never were before. All of a sudden, it occurs to me that um, what I call interactive somatics, that is non-competitive, chosen places where people actually exercise their ability to be in physical contact with other people. And this includes, uh, obviously, this includes social dance, yeah, but it exactly. also includes things like therapy and massage and games and yoga and partner yoga and things where people, where we intentionally bring people together into group environments where they are, where the intention is that we shall express ourselves to each other in more defined, higher quality, m more practical ways of experiencing other people's physical bodies. And, and not just define ourselves, but also learn to listen to the other side, no? But we need more of this. We're going to need more organized activities, and especially for young people. Think of this generation of young people who have spent their sophomore and junior years of high school completely isolated and only on screens with other people. That's going to be the next generation of college students. And already I've seen generations of college students with diminishing intimacy skills. And so it really troubles me that the next generation of young people having suffered through the pandemic is going to be even more um, challenged with the, with the, with the, with the behaviors necessary to establish any kind of legitimate human physical relationship with other people. And social dancing can be a vehicle for establishing really good social skills. Mm -hmm. And unfor unfortunately, social dancing is seen by our academic establishment as a kind of throwaway. And the reason for that is that those forms of social dance that existed in the 1950s and 60s were very regimented um, in terms of ballroom dancing, square dancing, folk dancing, and they were replaced by improvisational dancing, rock and roll dancing, hippie dancing of the 1960s, do your own thing kind of dancing. And when, when, when social dancing, when, when, when it came back, this revival of social dancing that we're having right now, it hasn't really made it back into organized academic settings. It's not, it's no longer really part of the, the curriculum of, of middle school and high school and college. Um, and therefore, we're missing an opportunity to offer what I think is really maybe the highest quality education in intimacy that's available, which is through these social dance forms the way we're practicing them now. So and when we were, sorry. So when we were talking the other day, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious about the responsibility of the present generation of dance teachers and dance organizers, et cetera, coming out of the pandemic, how do we teach people how to practice the skills of dancing and develop the ability to transmit the beauty of physical interactive relationship to the coming generations of people that want to be involved in dancing and in play and in intimacy? 
how do we use our 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 world of social dance as a vehicle for transmitting the beauty of this uh, genre that we have of physical physical intimacy. And but I think that was always like I I I don't know at least for us as teachers that was always the goal. Like I don't think the pandemic necessarily changed that goal. It's just the need for it. Uh, right, but what worries, the, be, what worries me right now is the rush back to large-scale organized events of dancing with people that you don't know in an environment where it's still relatively unsafe to interact mm -hmm. with people in the same air, etc. So the, the what I was talking to Adam about on the phone the other day while we were doing the sound check is that I think there's an intermediary step right now, which is the development of small dance pods, mm -hmm. small groups of people that practice together, and that in order to keep teachers employed, that teachers should have small groups of dancers that practice together, and that those dancers who have the resources should fund the practice of dancers who don't have the resources. So hmm. teachers should get paid by, like I'm hoping in my world to have dancers that have resources pay for their own dance pod and possibly pay for a dance pod of young people who can't afford to pay for it themselves. Mm -hmm. But that, but that what we need to have is we need to have a small subset of dedicated dancers that stay practicing together through these hard times that are coming up and that when dancing finally becomes safe, when it becomes safe to gather together in big groups, that we'll still have a quorum of dancers who are practiced and good to be the role models for everybody else. Hmm. Because I'm afraid that, you know, in the present situation, even dancers who are pretty good at dancing are seeing their social dance and their social skills atrophy during this period of isolation. Yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a very social person, but I... I have genuine fear about going into a restaurant and sitting down in a restaurant. Hmm. Um, I think that people are going to be challenged by the idea of getting back together in large groups of people to dance with people that they don't know or they don't know how safe they're being. And even if we wear masks, we tend to dance in spaces that have low ceilings and where we're all sharing air. And particularly mm -hmm. in the case of tango, we circulate around the dance floor and, uh, we we are all mixed up with each other so it we should. are but to be honest like we did start small pods of stuff last week um like group group and it's contained and uh also a very small milonga uh, again limited in number and encouraging this sort of an atmosphere and i find it sort of fascinating and i am sure like you said, there are people, and we do see, there are some people who's come maybe with a friend and they are not venturing out to like dance with many people. But at the same time, I am seeing that because there is more of a starvation towards something that uh, people who were in it earlier on that they missed, there is an openness to dance and interact with people they don't know that they may not have done a year and a half ago. Are so you there is the other... To, are you asking people to be vaccinated? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Vaccinated mm -hmm. and masks and, uh, and it's... 
I, I, I'm so like we didn't know what to expect, and I am uh, I'm amazed like that um, there is an openness with some people like the majority is that's what I saw. But again, we're talking about about a small part of people. Um, well, I'll tell you that one f the, my biggest fear that I have um, comes from something that is not related at all to our world of dance or to our profession, but. Um, here we are in the richest country in the world, and obviously we're hoarding the vaccines. So at this point, anybody who wants to be vaccinated is vaccinated. Mm -hmm. And um, and maybe we'll reach herd immunity. It seems like in the northeastern United States, we might have more of a chance to reach regional herd immunity. But there's so many people that are anti-vax mm -hmm. that perhaps we'll never reach herd immunity. And because in the develop developing world, which includes Argentina, and India and Africa and South America, um, people are not getting vaccinated and there are variants that are arising, mm -hmm. et cetera. We're faced with a political situation where right now, because we're vaccinated recently and during this period of the next few months over the summer, while we're still waiting for the data to come in on how long vaccines last and how mm -hmm. effective they are at variants, et cetera, we, we do have a window right now to safely get together and, um, exactly. and, pra and practice with each other. But what happens when the next wave of variants comes or when people have to line up for booster shots, et cetera? And, and I just spoke to some of my friends in Buenos Aires and the entire dance scene in Buenos Aires is completely shut down because the mm -hmm. entire country is completely shut down. And um, people are really struggling in parts of the world where there is no vaccine. And because we are in the richest country in the world and because we are, in essence, still role models for other parts of the world, how appropriate is, is it for us to flaunt our vaccinated culture and to start modeling for the rest of the world going back too soon? So I, I think that, you know, part of our responsibility being that we teach people about social dancing and te teach people about organizing social activities is that we have to keep in mind that in most parts of the world right now, people are still needing to hide out from each other. Exactly. And so that's another reason why I think that developing how to have safe, small practice environments where people can be dedicated to each other and can meet weekly and meet every week and dance throughout this whole period of isolation that might last for the next year or two years while we're waiting for the whole world to get vaccinated. Um, I, I would hope that we, as a culture of social dancers, can model for the rest of the world how to safely practice together. And it is kind of like heralding in a new way of practicing, which honors the history of the dance, which is that people who practice are the people who get good at it, and that you do have to walk your miles on the dance floor. And in a, in a time when we can't necessarily do that with strangers, and with people from other neighborhoods or with people from other cities, that maybe we can do that in our smaller neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And I have to say that it's a bit frustrating. I talked to one of my friends in Buenos Aires about this, and he remarked that um, that's easy for you to say because you live in a small town, whereas when you live in a big city, it's a whole different set of challenges. And I recognize that I don't have the answer. Um, I know that living in a small town in a rural part of Massachusetts where everybody does want to get vaccinated around here. It's like 
those of us in my circle, we, we hardly know anybody who doesn't get vaccinated. Um, so it's easier for me to imagine something like this in my world. It's probably harder for you guys to figure out how to do that in New York City. Um, well, but each it organizer is. is going to approach this from their own Element. perspective of what perspective, they feel is yeah. comfortable and safe, I hope, in the interest of safety for the community. And we've decided that, you know, for now, vaccinated events only with masks, even though the CDC announced today that masks are necessary indoors if you're all vaccinated um, and keeping the numbers limited and just getting feedback from the community, reaching out to people, asking them what they think is best and what they feel comfortable with. Um, and, and like, yeah. yeah, and we haven't been announcing publicly like we've just spreading the word through our students and our friends so that it's well i would say people would say, we know I, I and the people they know as opposed to like people random people we may not know walking right, through the right. door right now well i'm um, learning from you as i'm listening i'm learning from you and i would just say that it sounds like i would like to add a step like that to what i'm doing mm -hmm. and it also sounds like one possible really successful step for people in your position is that certain subgroups of people who really know each other and feel safe with each other should get together and practice perhaps paying teachers to practice with them but in small dedicated groups where the same group of people meets all the time then you could take the masks off mm -hmm. well i think that's also been happening so now our event yeah it's something you pay and enter but we've also been uh hearing and also are witnessing that there's been small pods of friends like uh, even before the vaccine was so much uh, extended throughout the nation like people were getting tested and deciding to like quarantine for a week and then get together in at a friend's house and mm -hmm. uh, dance maybe six people or eight people or like there will be an event on a certain night on the weekend with friends at their house so there's been like what what you're trying to create is already organically happening with people to go back to something they miss doing and they are finding a way to do that in a safe place with people that, that, that they feel safe with. Such a beautiful thing. And um, the one the one suggestion that I would make, because I don't know how many people are listening to this program, but just to put it out there is that. Um, Everybody should look at the budget of what they normally would spend in a year going out to classes and to milungas. And when you do meet in these small practice groups, etc., either pay local teachers to come and work with you or pay virtual teachers from Buenos Aires or from anywhere to visit your small group and work with you or, or just pool the money together and donate to people who are professional organizers and teachers in your local communities because those of us that love dance and are formally part of the profession of dancers, we mostly all do what we do because we love what we do. And mm -hmm. very few of us make enough money to really live or to have saved a lot of money or to be able to survive mm -hmm. without mm -hmm. some kind of support. So yeah. I would strongly uh, uh, request of people who are out there loving dance enough to make these small groups happen, to find ways to pool your money and to support people in the profession so that when the all clear sounds and we can go back to having a healthy dance world like we had before, that we won't have lost all of these mentors and teachers mm -hmm. and people who organize events for us. So yeah. um, I'd like to put out a plea for people to consider doing that.
and well, to... I, I think that's great. I mean, and I, I think it's, um, I, there have been really, there have been a lot Amazing of people support reaching too. out and supporting, and I'm hoping that in your community there's been that as well. Um, and I always want to give credit to those people and tell them we appreciate them, people listening to this, and that help us. And and I think it's a really nice way to to wrap it up for tonight because um, yeah. it's on a positive note. And and I appreciate your time and your journey and uh, amazing you contributed to the <laughs> community yes. at large. Um, Thank you so much for the invitation for the future. And, uh, and great work uh, having done 60 of these shows. Now I have an opportunity to go and listen to some of the recordings and you'll keep me busy for the next few months. And maybe you can uh, you can also convince Rebecca to come and be one of our guests one week. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so thank you very much. Daniel. Thank you, Daniel. It's It's been amazing to get to know you more too because like having these conversations, we also find that connects us deeper than a few times that I've had the chance to run into you at events over the years. Yes, I and look forward I, to the next time. And I, I'm, I'm, I've learned a lot tonight, and it's been amazing to know your past and your experience and your thoughts. Really, thank you for the time that you spent with us. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you. Evening. Bye, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye. Stay Bye. well. Stay. Rebecca was trying to get back on, I think. To say uh, goodbye, but... Here, but hi and bye. Thank you, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Rebecca. Thank Take you, care. Rebecca. Well, that was very informative and interesting. That was really, really, I and yeah, all the past. It's mm -hmm. amazing to hear from a first-hand experience of all the stages that. Yeah, uh, we've heard, but like his experience is so extensive. Yeah, really from would... like the, the beginning of the second wave in the 80s when yeah. he came back, you know, like, like, yeah, for him to be there right at that time, it's with a gift. And uh, yeah, and like you mm -hmm. said, how he recognized and took the steps to well, that's keep really us connected that's... to that time. Yeah, that's that's when you're somebody who's perceptive enough to say, you know what, this is a fleeting moment we need to grab this and, and document it it's uh yeah it's always nice because we've lost so much in tango you know i mean there were how many orchestras 500 orchestras and how many recorded maybe yeah. 40 50 <laughs> yeah so we've lost so much i was just in the class with Horacio the other day and he said that um there's no darienzo's first record company was electra and there's literally no electra vinyl flack whatever you call them in existence they just don't wow. exist so we've lost a lot of stuff but i think we'll wrap it up there i'm going to play a song to end it and um fantastic we, thank you we, cheeky who's who's coming next week uh we have let me gabrielle from montreal right yeah i believe so let me double check yes we have gabrielle Prin from montreal um he's gonna be our cello first cello Right? Or no, we had Ma Maxfield. We had Maxfield. Yeah. yeah. He's going to be our second But we cello. will have a musical guest Music. next week. And I'm very excited and we look forward to being back. So. What's the song? Amas Retornas by Oh, Hello. fantastic. Thank you, Adam. 